Thank you, bro. Thank you, John. Good morning. Welcome. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Sower Church. It's an honor to be with you this morning, and I'm excited to look at this passage. I, just disclaimer, I spent my childhood with sheep. My dad had market lambs at the Adams County Fair. We would show market lambs sheep in Colorado, and and uh, I spent many a summers of a bad teenage attitude grumbling and complaining about sheep and what they were doing. And the thing about me is I was this size in high school, and you have to get like really low to show a sheep so they flex their back. It's like a bodybuilding contest for sheep. And, and I'd always lose to these, this little petite blonde girl who beat me every single year. Um, and so I, this is sheep, uh, my childhood. There's a lot of memories in this passage for me. And so it's good to, it's good to spend time looking at this passage. And if you look with me at parables, there's a parable of the lost sheep and, a, and then the parable of the lost coin. And then next week, Dan will button up this three parable story set Jesus is rolling out with the parable of the lost son. And so I get the honor of looking at the first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And so how do you read parables? How do you get handles of what's up with a parable? Jesus' parables, and what do you do with them? And so a parable is supposed to have one short point, one short point. And so the short point from today's passages that I'm looking at that I hope you can grab onto and walk away with is you should be able to see the heart of God towards sinners, the heart of God towards sinners in these two parables. And so if you'd bow your heads, let's, let's pray. And I'm going to ask for some help to do this well. Lord, I thank you for Luke 15, verse 1. I thank you for all of these verses we get to look at. The Word of God is powerful and effective. It's alive, and it can change our lives, Lord. I ask that you just help the Word of God to fall on hearts that are soft and tender, that want to hear from you. I ask that you just really instruct us, convict us, challenge us, and change us, Lord. I ask that the Holy Spirit would genuinely change our heart and our disposition as we look at these passages, Lord. As we see where we where what is happening and the, all the characters in this in these scenes we look at, Lord, and we hear this story, Lord, I pray that the heart of God would ring loud and clear through this word into our eyes, and we would see that and make that part of our lives. I pray that you just really just imprint our souls as a congregation with these parables, Lord. Uh, we love you and commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, look with me at Luke 15, verse one, page five ten. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So if you remember, last week we looked at some of the most hardest statements Jesus said, some of the hardest words and hardest sound bites Jesus dropped about the cost of discipleship. Uh, have to de deny your own life, have to give up everything you have, have to you know, expect persecution from even your close family relationships. He laid an incredibly high standard of discipleship. And the, the cause and effect of those hard words created a bunch of soft-hearted sinners who were sitting and gathering and spending time with Jesus. So why were the tax collectors and sinners drawn to Jesus? You should think that way. He says mean things to them. He calls them out on their stuff. He is, he's got a very hard stance on sin and they're famous sinners, the notorious sinners of their cities. And they were drawn to Jesus. Jesus had a, a morality that was more demanding than the religious leaders of the day. He had a higher standard for morality of what it meant to be following God and right in God's eyes and what God valued than the religious leaders of his day. There's that preaching saying, hard words make soft hearts, but soft words make hard hearts. 
Jesus had plenty of hard words, and he had a high standard he called his people to, but the people couldn't. They heard he was there, and they came running. Jesus drew sinners. If you think even back to the same hard words to sin, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his public address, his first grand opening massive sermon that you hear sound bites through throughout the rest of the Gospels, um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he takes the moral law that the religious leaders were teaching um, about public sin, and he made it even more higher, unreachable, and made it the private sin, the private sin of lust, the private sin of coveting, the private sin of anger. And he said at the end of that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But we all know no one's perfect. Jesus had an incredibly high standard when it came to sin. And he was very tough on sin. And the biggest, wildest sinners of the city would flock to him. Jesus didn't draw people to him because he was soft on sin and he had soft, squishy sermons. He drew people to him because he was hard on sin and called them out. And they, they, loved, they felt loved by him. Jesus has a purpose statement in Luke 19, 10. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And this is evident all throughout the Gospels. Jesus seeking and Jesus seeing people saved, those who were once lost. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And if you hear that, and you hear my story about some childhood memories, and you're like, what are we talking about sheep for? I haven't seen a sheep in years. I haven't touched a sheep since I was a kid at a, at a petting zoo. And it almost licked, bit my finger, and I got scared. I mean, sheep, what's with these Christians? Sheep? Could have picked a better animal. <laughs> what are we talking about? Sheep. Uh, we don't see sheep in Nebraska. Um, but you have to realize that this, this, this context of this historical you know, lens that these people are hearing these, this parable through, it was very common that shepherds would have communal shepherding. So they'd hang out and talk like we see when, when the angel visits the shepherds. They would be together with all their little flocks. And the, the amount of pasture land that was grazable was very limited like it is today, like it is back in this day. And they would have multiple flocks with multiple shepherds in this area. And if one of them lost a sheep, he would say to the other shepherds, hey, watch my, watch my sheep, my, watch my sheep. <laughs> I'm going to go find that stray. And at the end of the day, the other shepherds would bring all the flocks to where they need to be kept at night. And the city would hear, oh, Mike's out looking for that sheep again. I wonder if it's that, that yearling. I wonder if it's Betty, that, that you, lamb, got lost. We'll see. And here comes Mike, late in the evening, carrying his bed. And we're like, ah, well, well done, shepherd. You didn't lose that sheep. Good job. Way to do your job. This was a normal celebratory part of life in Israel at that day. Even today, a friend told me from first service, he remembers doing a tour of Israel, and he looks over and he sees a random shepherd chasing a random sheep that's running away. Even today, men and women. So there's this cultural lens that this was common for them, uh, the seeking, the finding, and the celebrating of that which was lost. But who is Jesus speaking to? Jesus' target audience of who he is speaking to, is it the, is it the, is it the Pharisees? Is it the scribes? Is it the famous sinners? Is it the tax collectors? Who's his target audience? Is it us today? In the year 2023, Jesus' target audience, the scandal of this parable of who he's speaking to, is he's speaking to the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus is a self-declared good shepherd in John 10, 14. The good shepherd. 
And the scandal here in this parable is that the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the under-shepherds of the shepherd, God. These men had a total apathy and a lack of care for the sheep of Israel. If you contrast that with Jesus who cared too much, these men cared too little. There's a famous saying among the day of historians will tell you that the Pharisees said there's great rejoicing in heaven when one sinner is obliterated. There is this, there's this hatred towards famous sinners in the city. They would not teach them the word of God. The scribes would not teach them what the word, the law says. The Pharisees, the culture hated them and ostracized them. They, the Pharisees would not eat with people who were famous sinners. The Pharisees would only eat with good people, Jewish people not people who fell out of the Jewish faith. They, if you were a notorious sinner, a tax collector, you wouldn't, your, your witness in court was considered invalid. You're canceled by your culture, you're canceled by the religious leaders of your culture's religion, and they had nothing to do with you. They talked mean about you, and they wouldn't spend time with you. And you contrast that with Jesus, who cared too much for these sinners, these tax collectors, who spent his time with notorious sinners. But the fact, the scandal is, these shepherds of the scribes and the Pharisees were failing at their job. I don't know if you get job reviews. I get job reviews. And if you got this scathing job review that God gave the Israel, the leaders of Israel in, in Ezekiel 34, you would be worried. Ezekiel 34. It is on page 421 in your house Bible. And when I was writing it, reading it this morning, I underlined all of it so that no verses would feel left out. I underlined all of it. But Ezekiel 34 is a scathing reproach of God to the shepherds of Israel at that time. It is one of the most brutalist passages to read if you're a pastor. And as we read it together, you'll be like, dang, that's not fun. Let's read it together. Ezekiel 34, picking up in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The wick you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with, with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds were not searching for my sheep. But the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep. I will require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And my shepherds seeking out his flock when he is among his sheep, 
that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from the places they have been scattered on on a day of the dark of clouds and thick darkness. And I'll bring them out of the places, the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the, the ravines and in, in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. If you look ahead to verse 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will let and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. If you were a, a Jewish leader in the day of Ezekiel when that was said, you would take that very poorly. You would not appreciate the words of the prophet Ezekiel. If you were a Jewish leader and you hear Jesus calling himself the good shepherd and hearing him using this parable, it would be a scandal. He is calling you out on your hypocrisy, your hatred, and your apathy, and your general discontent for people who are far from God. So what kind of sinners are in this parable? What kind of sinners are we looking at? Well, we have sinners and sinner sinners. And so we're going to start with sinner sinners. It's funny, Jesus knows all, and, and he knows that all have sinned. And, and to me, it seems funny that if you're a little sinner or a big sinner, Jesus isn't really concerned about being with you. Like in this global pandemic of sin, everyone's contagious. Everyone's caught sin. And Jesus is not worried about sin. He's walking around. He's got the antibodies of sin in his blood, and he's not worried about being if a, a sinner that has a mask or a sinner that has vaccinated or a sinner who's not masked and not vaccinated. Jesus is not concerned because he sees everyone as sinners, and he's there to fix the biggest problem they have. their sin problems. But the first group, the sinners, their, their thoughts and their attitudes are far from God, and they heard about this Christ who has a strong standard against their sin, their immorality, and they want to spend time with him. And they're famous sinners. They're the kind of people that everyone in the city knows their dirt. Everyone in the city knows their story. Everyone in the city knows what got them here. And everyone in the city is surprised that Jesus, a religious man, is spending time with these sinners. This, this famous prophet, this rabbi, this guy who knows so much about God, can't read the book in front of him. Now, this is a famous sinner sitting across from him having a meal. So you have sinners at this parable. You also have tax collectors, which are career sinners. They're considered traitors to their Jewish culture. They are working for the occupied country of Rome that's oppressing them. They are taxing, extraordinarily taxing their coworkers. Kind of like Black Hills Energy is doing some things to us right now with your utility bill. And you're like, what the heck? That's, it's amazing what is happening in our, in our city. It's amazing what's happening in these cities by these career centers, these tax collectors. And they had an immoral lifestyle that went along with their occupation. They had to work with Rome, Roman occupying forces. And I'm assuming the win in Rome phrase comes from tax collectors. Win in Rome. 
go to orgies with my boss, <laughs> when in Rome, get drunk at the temple with my boss. I mean, the Romans were notorious sinners, and they worked for them, and they spent time with them on and off the clock. And they were sellouts for their local Jewish people, oppressing them, taking their lands, their, their crops, their homes. They were, they were taking advantage of their people. And they were barred from giving alms at the Jewish temple. They weren't allowed to come to church and give money. These Jewish people, their, their testimony in court was invalid. They were hated at every place they turned, except for when they turned to Jesus. And then next in this parable, we have the, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. And these are career religious people. And they were not associated with sinners. They didn't teach sinners the law. They were taught not to care about godless sinners. And they were mad that Jesus associated and cared for and taught godless sinners. So in this parable, we have all kinds of sinners. Proud and humble sinners and private and public sinners. We have it all. And why are the Pharisees and the scribes offended by Jesus? Well, they're denial, denial sinners. They're people that had an inflated view of self and their goodness and a deflated view of God and his righteousness. Next, Jesus jumps into a second parable, verse 8. We read, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Biblical scholars connect the dots for us that these coins weren't just ten days' wages. It's two weeks of income. And she lost a day's wage. It wasn't just that. They said these 10 coins probably represented a marriage dowry. She needed to have these 10 coins to be able to get married. This is a life-altering 10 coins. That would change her status in her country and her social status and her financial security. This was a life-altering coin that she lost. And there's some similarities in these two, past, these two parables. A lost sheep and a lost coin. One thing is just the structure is the same. Both have, there's a lostness, there's a searching, there's a finding, and there's a great rejoicing. There's also another similarity about both these, that both these, in the high level of the economy of the day, were not very pricey objects. One day's wage and one sheep were not that high-end thing. It wasn't like they lost their Tesla. They didn't lose anything fancy here. This is like, that. it's unfortunate, you'll live with it. Move on. It's not like this is earth-shaking wealth exchanging hands that is lost. But the difference between these two parables, a lost sheep and the lost coin parables, a sheep is a pitiful, helpless animal. Its instincts are virtually useless and it's, it's got pathetic defenses. You've never seen a sheep do a good job of defending itself against a predator. Both had great value to the people that were searching for them. The man spent his time pursuing his sheep. The woman spent her time practically pursuing a good thing I'm going to skip the gender joke because none of us laughed at the first service about men and women's differences and what we lose and stuff. They're lost sheep. Pastor's jokes don't always work, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> lost sheep. The lost sheep wandered away. Lame struck, weak, and it wandered away. The coin lost touch with the woman. Unintentionally got lost. But let's, let's notice the last part of these this passage and this parable, the rejoicing parts. Verse 7 is the first rejoicing part in the first parable. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. That is flying in the face of the opposite of that, that the, the Jewish teachers were teaching at that day, about annihilating 
sinners and 99 angels rejoicing. That is, a, that is not an accident. That is intentional flying in the face, contrasting the heart of God versus the heart of these people. And then verses 9 and 10. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This whole rejoicing doesn't sound like only people that repent need to rejoice. All need to repent and rejoice. The sinners, the scribes, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, all need to repent. All have sinned. All have gone astray. Like we looked at in Isaiah 53 back on Christmas Day. Both parables have an immense amount of joy found in them. If we want to have the heart of God towards God's heart, when he sees humanity, when he sees people, he sees the world and he sees people. When we have a heart for God, when we want to have the same heart that God has, we should have the same joy, the same excitement that new faith, new converts bring into a community group, bring into a church. When people in your community group are trying to share their faith and people become saved and they're making mistakes, saying things Christians don't say, when their testimony includes swear words, it's exciting for me to hear people share their faith. And if it's a person sharing their testimony for the first time, and you're like, yeah, it's great. Maybe a few less cuss words, but that was great, brother. You know, like kids say the darnest things, baby Christians say the darnest things, and they're cute. Hold them, kiss those little baby Christian cheeks, take photos with them, give them space, and pack them full of food of God's word. And don't be mad at Christians, baby Christians, people new to church, new to Christianity that make mistakes. If we have a heart for God, for the lost, for the lost sheep, the lost coin, we should realize the reality that there are people that come to our church that have never heard that communion devotion before. They've never sang that song before. They've never heard that prayer before. They've never looked at that passage before. In Luke or Ezekiel, they've never done that before. That's why we try to give some prompts to help them navigate through this book. That is a big book. It should remind you of where you were when God first called you and just celebrate the fact that there's new converts, baby Christians, pre-Christians coming to your community group, coming to this church. And that's a good thing. People that hear the word of Jesus, they are drawn to it. It's a bigger scandal for us to have a church with no baby Christians in it than it is for a church that has baby Christians coming and doing what baby Christians do. If you have the heart of God for the people around you, you should rejoice greatly when you see people and these two parables, from the lost are being found, you should rejoice greatly because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Your heart is the same as your Savior's to seek and save the lost. The last nine months, I was reflecting on this with some of our pastors about just what is happening in our culture of evangelism. It seems like our world, the world is so bad at friendship. It is shocking how bad friendship is in this world. People can have a horrible thing happen in their life they post something online. And if I'm a friend that's lost, supporting a lost friend, all I have to do is send in a sad face, a teary face emoji. And I'm done. That's it. People in our world are such poor friends because of technology. They think they saw a picture, sent a quick little text message. Sorry. Hugs and kisses. Sad face emoji. That makes them a good friend. Our world is is aware of the loneliness and the depravity of what's happening on the country, around the world. Our world is aware and they're looking for answers. Our world is struggling and they're looking for answers. They are lost sheep and they know it. They are lost coins and they know it. 
and they intentionally walked away and they unintentionally walked away. They walked away because they're wounded or a predator got a hold of them or they just got distracted and people moved on and life moved on and they are lost and they're looking for help. I'm amazed if just some analogies, if the evangelism isn't your thing and you don't like swimming in the waters of evangelism because it's too cold and people are too harsh and mean. The pool got warm the last nine months. It feels like a jacuzzi in my opinion, sharing with people and I'm not, I am not an evangelist. You're like, you're an evangelist. I am not. I have a spiritual gift assessment many of you guys took, and it wasn't high on that either. But I've been jumping into the waters of evangelism, and it's warm. It's like if you play basketball, and the rim's 10 foot high. 10 foot high. And someone lowered it at the YMCA to that six foot thing. And you're like, I am the man. <laughs> ah! You know, that's what evangelism is like right now, people. Texting, calling, you know, befriending people, saying, let's go grab coffee. No one does that. We had, a, we had a family over for a house for dinner, and it wasn't that great, in my opinion. It was all right. It was all right. You know? And they're like, that was the best meal I've had in like years. That was amazing. Men and women, it is amazing how low the bar is for friendship and just relationships in our culture. The waters are warm. The hoop is lowered. If you're not a baller, get on the court. This is the time. This is our time, Christians, because there's lost sheep and lost coins, and no one's looking for them. No one's pursuing them. If you have the heart of God, the seek and save the lost, like this passage talks about. Come on, church. This is our time. The point of this passage is God's heart towards us. God's heart towards us. And we should see that heart and get excited about that heart. I, my father is a pastor, and he's preached sermons growing up. And he multiple times he's used this story, uh, The Hound of Heaven, this poem from Francis Thompson, talking about the Holy Spirit pursuing us, the Hound of Heaven. I'd like to read it to you. It says this, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth of ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter, up vista hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of charmed fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after. Ah, a foundest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. The Holy Spirit is still pursuing people today. And Christians that are following and walking humbly with the Holy Spirit are joining him in that pursuit today. God's heart towards us is to seek and save the lost. We see that same heart in Psalms 139 verses 8 through 10. We see a seeking, suffering Savior. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's heart is to seek and save the lost. And in that seeking and saving, there's a suffering that follows. I understand that. I know that. Jesus carried the cross of Calvary so that he's able to carry you and I, the lost sheep. But the heart of God is you and he's coming for you. We see the heart of God to reach the nations all throughout the Bible. The heart of God to reach the nations. Later in Ezekiel 36, in that same vein, you see that about him gathering the lost sheep and all over the nations of the world. It's, it's a beautiful passage. How put a new spirit and a new work in the people's lives. I, I love the heart for the nations that God is helping grow in our church here today. If you, if you look at these three prompt visuals, one is from the Joshua Project. It looks at the amount of money and man hours that are being sent on the mission field. 
America is the largest mission agency on the planet, uh, America. The second largest one is South Korea, the second largest country that's sending money and people. And the amount of green countries are fairly saturated with a significant church Christian presence over North America, South America, Southern Africa, Australia. Do you get what I'm, you see the green on the map. This is from the Joshua Project. You can download the Joshua Project app or the website. This is where 99% of the money and missionaries are going is green and yellowish countries. Yellow is just beginning new works and red is unreached, unengaged people groups. I don't know who you hang out with in Lincoln this week, but if you say to your friends and people you see this week, hey, you know anything about Jesus or Christianity? Your friends aren't going to look at you and be like, who's Jesus? I haven't met him. You know, Christianity, they have no idea. Do you get what I'm saying? So red countries, they have no clue. Jesus and Christianity is the statistical disproportionate amount of money and man hours, men and women hours that are being sent overseas as missionaries. The heart to seek and save the lost. If you go to the next slide here, this is the United States and our population and the amount of saturation we have of who prescribes to be Christians. Obviously, we're not checking out of trying to reach locally here. We sent out Sam a couple weeks ago. We're going to keep reaching out effort in, in Nebraska. That's not changing. We're not checking out. We're not spiking the gospel ball and saying, we've arrived. There's plenty of work to do in our backyard. But if you contrast the United States, which is more saturated with, with the, the next slide here, this is Thailand. This is where I think seven people are going in our church for a 10-day mission trip in Thailand. Um, how the population in like 1% of the country adheres to be Christians, which is amazing. Who is Jesus? They never heard of him before. What is Christianity? They have no idea. There is a disproportionate amount of money and man hours that is spent overseas. And we want to be strategic as a church and invest in the four corners of the outreach all over the globe. I think it's not a coincidence that there's a three and a half story cross in front of our church. This is a massive cross. None of us bought or paid for or installed. The church before us that gifted us this building, someone in that church had the heart to buy and vision and pay for that cross. That is the, the tallest structure in the neighborhood. And the four-corner crossing is designed so that the gospel go to the four corners of the world. That is the heart of Jesus, to seek and save the lost. The heart of God is for the lostness, that they would know him. We're going to try to lean into that more as a church. Isaiah 53, all, have, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're here listening as we conclude there's different camps you can be in. You might be here saying like, you know, Mike, I am that stray sheep. I am that lost coin. Christians in this church are pursuing me. And I think the uh, Holy Spirit, God guy is pursuing me. And I'm figuring things out. And that's good. That's okay. We want to celebrate that process of where you are. We have some great resources out there. There's a great Are You Born Again resource out there we can give you. That's been very helpful for people to kind of understand vocab and language and definition of what's happening it is a great tool out there. We have, we have people here that love to buy a cup of coffee with you and talk and hear your story and continue to have conversations with you. Many are coming to Christ, and that's encouraging, but today is the day of salvation. Count the cost, weigh the cost, but commit. Christ committed to you. If you are a teenage Christian, you're not an old OG Christian, but you're not a baby pre-Christian, you're, you're an adolescent teenage Christian, I challenge you to have the same heart that God had for the lost, when you see and hear lostness in your community groups, in your church. Rejoice like those bridesmaids with the lost coin. Rejoice like the community of people rejoice when the shepherd brought back that lost sheep. Be rejoicing when baby Christians act like babies and say baby things. 
rejoice with them. There's a great spiritual multiplication class that we offered last summer into August. Uh, Dallas led it for us. It, it, we're going to offer it again March, April, and May. I think I've done like nine or so, ten-ish evangelism courses to like learn how to share your faith in effective ways. And this class has had longest standing implications in my life. I am texting Dallas a couple times a week like, oh, shared the shared my testimony with the kid's piano teacher today. <laughs> Oops. Uh, shared with one of my neighbors again today. Oops. You know, like it's actually happening and I'm not like making myself do it. I forgot all about the class. But the principles of the Bible and what we learned in the book of Acts as we spent those 10 weeks looking at it have impacted my personal life and when I open my mouth and share with people. And I'm not like conjuring up courage to say things. The Word of God, understood rightly, applied in your life rightly, gives you the same heart of God for lostness. If you want to jump in that class, we can sign you up. Just let us know. We are bugging you to sign up for those classes, church. It doesn't have to be your top gift to sign up for that class. If you're a mature Christian, continue to chase strays like the, the good shepherd, Jesus. The heart of God is chasing strays. The heart of God is finding lostness. If you want to join us with praying, like Luke 10, 2, saying to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers, more laborers into the field. You can set your alarm on your phone and be praying that prayer with us, with me also. That God will give us more workers, more laborers to reach and disciple more people. If you want to get alarms on your phone from the Bible, uh, Joshua Project app or the International Mission Board app to pray for unreached, unengaged people groups, you're welcome to do so. But in this parable, in these passages, we see the heart of God on full display. And it's a heart that loves and values you. You are immensely more valuable than a lost sheep or a lost coin. God sent his son, his very best, Jesus Christ, to reach you. He didn't send the B team or the C team. He sent the A team, Jesus Christ, to find you and lead you to him. God's heart for people is you to seek and save the lost. As we follow God and we know more about God, we're going to develop that same heart as Christians as we mature in our faith. A lack of evangelism in your church and apathy to the gospel outreach and sharing of new people is not a theology problem. It's a, it's a theology and liveology problem. It's a discipleship problem. And I love the heart that is happening and growing in our church. The heart of God is becoming your heart, church, of seeking and saving the lost, of fishing for men. And that's the thing we should celebrate. We should always celebrate when people become new and take first baby steps in their faith. And we should pray that God helps us take baby steps of opening our mouth and serving and texting a friend, calling someone, sending someone a funny meme that you haven't seen for a while. Think of all of your faith journey. You, you met God and got saved. And really that happens in a vacuum where you're walking along and you're like, what's this? Oh, it's a book. I'll read it. Oh, I'm going to pray to receive Christ. I've heard that testimony once in my life. I've heard a lot of testimonies. Many of you, there's an on-again, off-again, start-stop relationship you had with God. And there was people that came along beside you, in front of you, and behind you, showing the way, pushing the way, chasing you down. God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is for you, your neighborhood. God's heart is for the lost. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, thank you for today. As my personal prayer has been in our, my, my prayer time, Lord, I pray we would be a church that whole has a burden for the lostness, a heart for evangelism, Lord, of opening our mouth and sharing our faith with people. I thank you for the people who've gotten saved. Thank you for the people who are in the process of getting saved. Lord, I ask that you just do work in people's lives, especially all of us here in this room. Help us to 
hear and understand and obey and have the same heart as you do, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.